The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody today. So last week I mentioned that, uh, you know, just as a review, a way of starting over, using the new year for that reason, and in particular just getting a sense, because because mindful awareness practice is so simple, it can be quite difficult. And sometimes it's like we have to start over, take a fresh, have a fresh relationship to what the practice is. So I mentioned last week these two values of being relaxed and alert. That's one way to keep it really simple. And this week I want to just talk more about um, that underlying value of relaxation and that underlying value of alertness or curiosity, interest, as uh, two basic motivations. Like, do we may not need much more. I mean, clearly our life is going to be more complex than relax and be alert, but it may be that all the wholesome qualities of heart that we need to be a good human being, it might just not naturally flow out of those two qualities working, dancing together, clarity and relaxation. And remember, remembering that even if when we're being a really unskillful human being, Generally, human beings are motivated by compassion in the sense like when people do stupid stuff, they're trying to take care of themselves. You know, when we drink too much or watch too much TV or act out our anger in a way that's destructive, harms our relationships to other people, hurts other people, you know, on some, in some convoluted way, we're just trying to take care of ourselves, right? So... There's always this, you know, real skill as a human being always arises with balance. It's an integration, an integrated way of being. So in this sense, you know, compassion needs to be connected with the way it is. Like that basic motivation to take care of myself and then to take care of others, it has to be grounded in like, well, what's happening? Because a lot of times people are doing something to take care of themselves or take care of other beings, and they're they're making things worse. So it wasn't wasn't that their motivation they set out to cause harm, necessary necessarily, but that they didn't understand what the root of the suffering is. Isn't that the case? We just don't see. We don't see what we don't see. We don't understand what we don't understand. But we're very uncomfortable in that place of humility. It feels very exposing to own that we don't know. Those of you who are parents, you know, to kind of remind yourself, I don't know how to be a good parent. I don't know how to be a good partner. I don't know how to be a good citizen. I was listening on um, on Being, that radio program with Krista Tippett. She was interviewing 
Claudia Rankin this morning, a well-known poet, African-American poet and scholar and all-around wise person. And uh, yeah, just they were talking about this, that, that quality of humility and uh, what gets in the way of that. And so let's just think for a while about institutionalizing the value, strengthening the value around this first part, which is to relax or calm, steadiness of the heart, ease, right? The steadiness that comes from being at ease. You can't force calm, right? I got to be calm. I got to be relaxed. It doesn't work. It really has to it naturally, I should say, arises when we feel safe. And part of the way we feel safe is we strategically pay attention to what helps us feel safe and relaxed when that's the medicine we need in that moment of our life. But you know how it is when we're in our culture generally and we get uh, what gets reinforced is we could call it an addiction to drama and intensity and being tight. And so it doesn't, it feels a bit like um, we're being inappropriate if we don't keep pushing that button of intensity by how we pay attention to what's around us. Because I can always be looking at the provocative stuff, the stuff that engages triggers anger, triggers greed, or other sort of more intense reactive emotions. But I could also in any moment, probably if I was patient and interested enough, I could find something to notice that would be conducive of calm and grounding and relaxation. So there's a choice. We don't realize that this, in Buddhism we might call it a karmic choice, just a give it a little charge, like, oh yeah, it's karmic, so we should, you know, I'll get, I'll get payback if I don't do it right. <laughs> so now all of a sudden we're interested. Like, it's a karmic choice, what, how we're paying attention and what we're paying attention to in each moment. So if I notice, like, how nice it, it, it is for me to have a nice sweater on, how comforting that is. Or if I notice something else about the room, that's triggering, whatever it might be. This person doesn't make me feel safe. And it's not like there's one truth. It's more like, and this is how the Buddha taught in this very pragmatic way, what aspect of the truth is worthy of paying attention to? What's good medicine for me right now? What aspect of the present moment to tune into would be helpful right now? Not like, because we feel like if there's some terrible injustice going on around us or in our life, some terrible thing that's happened to us, it may feel because of our conditioning that I have to keep naming that, looking at that. And clearly that's really useful to do at times. But it's also nice to look at other things, to be aware of other things. And this is part of valuing calm is realizing that it's a skill how to relax. It's a skill to feel safe. Now, 
clearly some of us in our lives, it's going to be a little easier or a lot easier to feel safe than other people in other, having other lives, right? But we have the conditions we have in this moment, and the issue is the same for each of us. Given the conditions we have in our life in this moment, what's skillful? What should I pay attention to that would be helpful? Does this mind, body, me, does it need calm? Does it need relaxation? Or is there already sufficient ease, calm going on? So that's one thing about living out the value. Like if you at least are curious, if not already have a deep respect for calm as an ongoing value, even if we're in a hell realm, even if we're in a war zone, even if it's the worst moment of our life, it helps to whatever degree is possible or available, it helps to be calm. So if you have that trust and calm, then how do you live out that value in this kind of world where there is this enormity of suffering and injustice and confusion and just having a body, changing body, aging body that we're not able to control entirely, let alone being in an intimate relationship or raising children or having a pet even, is complex, right? So if we value, if we at least are interested that calm is a good thing, is a wholesome value to develop, to strengthen, to kind of be uh, something our heart, like a refuge that our heart returns to, whatever that's going to look like in this moment. Oh, it's going to look differently in different moments, of course. So one is to realize what we're paying attention to really matters. And then to see that it's not about like, don't pretend, oh, I have to pay attention to this, because there's always a choice how we're paying attention and what we're paying attention to. We have to be responsible for our heart. Is this helpful? Paying attention in this way to this experience, to this aspect of the experience. What's it setting in motion? Is that helpful? Another thing that really supports calm is this, what in Buddhism we call sila, or this um, training in integrity and non-harming. Because one of the most obvious disturbance, irritants in our life is the aftermath of being unskillful. Like when we're living a lie, when we're in a relationship that doesn't have a lot of integrity, could be a relationship to a person like a partner or our relationship to society and to our larger communities. If that relationship doesn't have a a lot of integrity, if we haven't expressed this commitment to non-harming, how might I be harming, how might I be complicit in other suffering, then that's going to exist in our ongoing life as a restlessness, a kind of irritant of remorse. We'll feel a little unsafe if we're 
not living with integrity, you know, around issues of economic justice and racial justice and sexism, these areas where it's just easy to imagine that we're good enough, right? That's that's part of our, I mean, this is just the mind taking care of itself. It's like, I'd like to avoid the messy stuff, so I'm going to assume I'm doing okay because I don't go out and kill people. I don't, you know, in obvious ways, take things that aren't mine. But this value of non-harming really supports, it's funny, it's uh, paradoxical, because it seems like getting involved, more deeply involved in how harm, how suffering is set in motion around us in our interrelated world, right, where we're you know, if I eat something, that means somebody else isn't eating it. If I live somewhere, someone else isn't living in that place. What I have, someone else doesn't have. And that's just, we can't get around that simple truth, right? So how do we integrate? How do we live in that interdependent way? So, Because otherwise, see, this is what wisdom sensitivity delivers. It's like, being in a separate place where somehow my well-being is independent of other people's well-being, on the surface that seems like a calm place to be. But that calm depends on not being sensitive. So if we want to be both sensitive, intimate, and calm, we have to really invest in sila, this commitment to non-harming. It's work. This is a central part of the Buddhist teachings of this commitment to non-harming. And it's like so easy, as I said, it's just culturally, we just want to put ourselves in that side of the equation where we're, we're living with enough integrity. You know, our morality, our commitment to justice is good enough. But if we understand it in a different way, the more we commit, the better the results. I mean, I don't want to make it sound so selfish, but it really is in that sense. It's like we have every incentive, human beings have every incentive to commit to non-harming because it really supports calm, really being grounded and at ease and feeling safe. You know, we have phrases in our culture like the sleep of the just, right? Like if we're living with a lot of integrity, even if it's confusing a lot of the time, the commitment itself allows us to sleep well at night. If we live a life of avoiding this complicity that we all have, there's no one immune from the complicity because this is where sharing soup. We're in the soup. We make up the soup together. There's no way we accept in the deluded ideas we have that we're actually like, no, 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 I earned this money on my own. Right? We, it's, it's no way for that to happen because we're in this together. So we need to sort of feel that and then we start to feel more relaxed, the more integrated, the more we start to own this interrelatedness, this complicity. So on the surface, again, it's mess. it seems messy as we start to like talk more deeply with the people we live with about our relationships and we start to own 
you know, our cultural conditioning and how it leads to groups of people being oppressed around race, around gender, around class, around where they were born. Then it's like that that integrity, you'll see its great value is that we feel a little bit more grounded in our life. It's easier to rest. It's easier to feel like we belong. Because we're living with more integrity, we feel like we belong in our life more. And this really supports calm. And then the last thing I'll say about calm, so three things. One is realizing that what we're paying attention to moment by moment matters in terms of just living with ease. And so it's always a question. We may have something really hot going on in our life, really painful, but that doesn't mean in this moment it's helpful to look at it, to feel that pain. It might be helpful to turn away from it for a while. Consciously, we know we're not pretending it's not there. Right? We have to know that it's there in order to know that now's not the time to feel into that or to look into that. I'll get to you, but not now. Now I need to notice that the sky's blue. I need to notice what it feels like to be walking and feeling the air, right? Or watching children play. I need to let that in for a while. So it really matters. And then the second thing is this commitment to not harming and to see that it never ends. We never get to that side of the equation where we're good enough because it always matters. Like we can always become more sensitive to this commitment not to harm. And it seems on the surface that it's going to get more complicated, but the actual result in our heart is that we feel more grounded, more at ease because of the integrity. So we really have to. Uh, check this out because on the surface it feels like the wrong way to go. Like to start really looking, for me as an example, to really looking at how gender plays out in my relationships as a somebody who identifies as a man or as a white person or all these ways that are just conditioned in. It just seems like Well, I mean, it is. It's complicated when we start to unpack that stuff and how it affects others and how we're complicit. But I feel better the more I do it. It hurts good, (laughs) right? Because it, what, what's really, you know, what we don't realize is how certainty, not conscious certainty, it's mostly unconscious, where we or we feel whoever we think we are, we feel pretty certain about that. And whoever I think you are, I'm pretty certain about that. That's a very, that normal, that's kind of a normal way for a human being to go through life. That's a very awkward and uh, tenuous existence. It takes a lot of psychic energy to hold that together. We never can be settled and calm. The only calm as a human being we have is when we drop all the certainty and we come into the messiness of life, the messiness of our conditioning, the messiness of our emotional lives, our sexual lives as sexual beings, our lives that's all about power, right? 
all the times our toes have been stepped on and all the times we've stepped on toes, all that lives in us. We just pretend that it doesn't live in us because it seems safer to stay in our ideas of who I am, who you are, as opposed to coming into, into the humility. So this is part of the work of sila or, you know, morality is an okay word to use, just uh, realizing this commitment we have naturally as sensitive beings to non-harming, not harming ourselves and others. So it doesn't, it's not like preferring others over ourselves or ourselves over others. It's we're all in the same boat, like I don't want to contribute to suffering. That altruistic instinct maybe that is just there when a being is sensitive, when a human being is sensitive. It's just there. And we have to honor it. And that we call sila or morality or this commitment to integrity. And then the last is just taking responsibility for our thoughts. It's really like I was saying before about, you know, what we pay attention to matters. And so just a little riff on that is just this thought maintenance. Well, what kind of thoughts are being entertained? What are that what are they setting in motion? Is that helping? So let me talk a little bit about this other value then. So we have relaxation, calm, ease, finding, whatever safety as a human being we can find, paying attention to that when that's good medicine, when that's helpful so that the system can calm, living a life with integrity so the system can really feel like it belongs. And the other is then, and you see how dependent on that first, the second is this this motivating and uh, real refuge of interest and alertness. Really, it comes out of a dynamic humility, not not a humility that feels like I, I can't know, I don't know, I'm stupid, I can't be figured out, but like uh, what we might see in a child sometimes this love of learning, the real delight in discovery, seeing what we haven't seen. So that's why in the West we often call as early Buddhism, the people who are really interested in these early teachings from this historic person, the person we call the Buddha, sometimes called Theravada Buddhism. We call it insight meditation or Vipassana meditation here in the West often because we like that to point out that enlivening quality of learning or insight, seeing what we haven't seen. But we don't see what we haven't seen when we're arrogantly certain. right? So being interested is really the same as that sense of humility, knowing that we don't know. Being open, being undefended, being exposed. right? Because all of those qualities, that's what supports the learning now, probably each of us, some place, maybe it's just a little sliver, maybe it's a big place, but we all have places in our lives where we feel that enlivening quality of learning. And what's interesting is how that doesn't exist in so many places in our lives. And that's what should be interesting to us. Like, why is my relationship to my partner? who I've been married to for 25 years, you know, when it doesn't feel enlivening, why? Is it actually that the relationship isn't interesting? 
or is the relationship sort of defined, defensively defined by my certainty of what it is or what it isn't? And it's like this, you know, this facade or this edifice of arrogant certainty that really kills relationships. Or like walking from your car to the grocery store. When's the last time that was an enlivening experience? Is there actually anything in the way of it being enlivening? Well, the absence of interest or the presence of certainty. Uh, This arrogant certainty might be expressed as some unconscious thought like, I know this, I don't have to be awake. This would be a good time to worry. This would be a, a good time to regurgitate a movie that was stupid the first time through, right? But some scene, you know, the mind wants to rethink. Reimagine, right? Or some fantasy, you know, or whatever it is that our mind fills itself up with, which is really the alternative to just being interested, to being enlivened by what's happening in the moment. So, part of the uh, commitment to interest is really knowing how to make effort. It's an effort, right? It's a wise effort because our mind is going to follow the deep rod of habit unless we make the effort to stay in that more fresh place, that place of not knowing, that place of humility, or that place of interest, alertness. We have to remember, so there's some effort involved, that it's interesting, life is interesting. Even boredom is interesting. Like, oh, that's interesting that the mind is so bored. It's interesting that my life feels so flat, like nothing ever happens, right? It's interesting that, you know, here I am. It's like, you know, an example, it's like, here I am hurtling down the interstate with a bunch of other crazed people tied into who who knows how many media sources, hurtling down in these cars, and I'm bored, or I don't find it, you know, I don't find the moment worthy of being awake. Or here I am with this child, you know, those of you who are parents, and somehow they don't, you know, I unconsciously don't feel like it's worth my effort to show up, to be awake. I'm looking at Corey over here, our construction manager. We're doing a big renovation out at Prairie Farm, Common Grounds Retreat Property. You know, he's got his power tools. Now, Corey's not like this, but you know, those of you who use big machines, it's like it's they're really incredible. And our proximity to danger is never far away. Or just remembering we've got this pump that someday's going to give out, and all these little fat particles floating through. You know, just waiting for some vein or artery too thin to pass through, you know, whether it's in the brain or... I noticed, you know, these little blue spots in my leg that, why are they so painful? You know, those places where the veins have gotten a little too flaccid or something, I'm not sure what it is. I thought, I should look up varicose veins and (laughs) see if there's anything I should be doing. But... Just paying attention, or just the electrical circuitry, you know, the nervous system that we're in the middle of. And just who knows what other kinds of sensitivities 
that we're all part of, the morphic soup of our culture. You know, I, I was out of the country and on retreat during 9-11, way back now. Um, so I missed, I think, the collective trauma that people who sort of were obsessed with the news cycles over and over again for those weeks and months. I was out of town until the middle of December um, and totally disconnected to any kind of media. And so just to kind of come back into the soup and to feel the fear that was, and I think currently continues, I think we turned a little bit of a corner. I mean, it was always there, of course, but it's just became a more dominant cultural personality, this fear and the divisiveness that comes out of it. And we act it out, we're acting it out in so many different ways. So this, it's really inherently interesting. And we should just maybe begin with that presumption that the moment being in a body, having a conditioned mind, being with a bunch of other bodies and conditioned mind, dancing together in this kind of soup, we call culture, it's inherently interesting. Being born and then dying is inherently interesting. Not knowing, like knowing that things are all in motion, but not knowing how it's going to play out is interesting. How could we miss this? It's really interesting. Like So even when we do feel dead, disconnected, even when we feel like it's not interesting, that's interesting too. Wow. And to kind of find a way, see, this is different. It seems different than the relaxation motivation, right? It's like really finding that energy where the heart wants to show up, wants to be undefended, wants to like be a fine-tuned, sensitive machine in a sense, or just like sensitive organ. I really, really want to feel my way through here. You know, I don't want to make mistakes. I don't want to cause suffering. So both from the negative, like I don't want to cause suffering, but also the positive, we have to play with both the possibility of real freedom, the possibility of true kindness and skill and contributing to the well-being of ourselves and others that that's a real possibility, a motivating possibility, not just avoiding doing stupid stuff that causes pain and suffering, but the real possibility of doing beautiful stuff that leads to healing and releasing and moments of real love and freedom. This is from, uh, I uh, heard this quote in that uh, speaking of, it used to be called Speaking of Faith, now it's called On Being, but um, Claudia Rankin uh, gave this quote from James Baldwin. Love takes off masks that we fear and cannot live without and know we cannot live within. I use the word love here not merely in the personal sense but as a state of being or a state of grace. Not in the infantile American sense of being made happy 
but in the tough and universal sense of quest and daring and growth. And to me, this really points out this enlivening place. But, you know, it can't, like I mentioned earlier, it can't be forced. We have to feel safe enough, which is why we have to value calm. And if you don't like the word calm, just substitute with a word that for you really feels right. But we need that sense of uh, that it's, it's okay to be relaxed. It's okay to soften. It's okay to be real. It's okay to show up. Because that's the place where we can be enlivened by possibility. The possibility of healing, the possibility of leaving behind the cycles of suffering, the possibility of justice and kindness and being a good friend and to ourselves and to others, right? And then life feels like it's worth living. I mean, we have an epidemic of suicide and addiction and overconsumption of media and pornography and all of these sort of deadening things that I'm guessing we're all dealing with in our own ways, in our lives, right? But we know, like, we don't need much perspective to realize that's not really a helpful way to live a human life. It doesn't really lead anywhere of real lasting value, right? We all know that. And yet, you know, it's not that even some of those obsessions are ultimately bad, but when the mind is taking them as a refuge, like following your sports team or following some novelist that you know, can't get enough of. So even the relatively, you know, ordinary and maybe even wholesome distractions that we fill our lives with, when we step back, we realize it's not really going to help me when I'm dying or a loved one's dying or when I meet injustice and want to respond to it clearly, powerfully. It's not really going to help. What will help? Well, knowing how to be at ease even when things are hot, and knowing how to be interested, how to be a good learner. So I don't need to already have all the answers, but I know how to learn. I know how every day, every minute even, we can the mind can be a little smarter, a little wiser about how to be a good human being. So I'll leave it here. We have a few minutes before the children come in. It'd be nice to hear from maybe a couple of you, your own response and comments about what I've said today or your own questions that have come up in regards to what I've said today. But what comes to mind? What do you move to share? Yeah, please start us off. My name is Julie. Your your words last week and this week have had a very profound impact on me. That both last week and this week, I we had uh, people talking about family members that were in hospice, and um, uh, the night that I was with my mother and she was obviously dying, and I, we were alone together. I, I knew that I was at that place, and a um, big part of my preparation to be there with her was that I did a lot of walking meditation and yoga when I would take little breaks. I'd go out in the yard and just on the grass 
in the sunset, do the yoga. And I really, that place of calm truly came to me. And I knew that my Buddhist practice was there for me because I was calm. And uh, I'm a former Peace Corps, so I had experienced uh, people in third world countries doing their grieving and I just knew that I would be okay with, through all this because I'd witnessed other cultures, the profound ability to do it, part of nature. And um, your words have really been so powerful that I want others in this group to know that they will be ready, that the curiosity about what this process is is nothing to be afraid of, and that uh, with the practice and with the calm and the, adhere, the attitude to just show up. And for me, it was a beautiful process because of these three traits that you've mentioned today. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing with us. Who would like to go next? We have time for at least one more. Hi, my name is Bronwyn. Um, and first, my condolences on your mother. Um, I also have something kind of similar in the sense that I'm a I work in a social worker, and your 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 uh, words today about how people sometimes they cling to the drama and to the the chaos that's happening, and I see that a lot with the people that I work with that are homeless, um, that have been experiencing that kind of all their life, and I just wanted to share just quickly a story that I had that unknowingly I was helping them to find that more. Uh, mindful and wholesome thing to cling to. I had somebody who was in a lot of trauma and was really focusing on the negativity of things that were happening around. Um, and she was very uh, concerned about her drug use and things like that. And I, I allowed her just to kind of go on and on about that. And then I just gently reminded her about how she was going to be not just her, but that she was now going to be in an apartment with her children. And I got her to just to stop a minute and just, and I said, what do you think is the first thing that your kids are going to do when they go into that house? And it was really nice just to kind of see the instant change and allowing her to just kind of let go of that spinning and the gripping to everything that was just really unwholesome and to let her focus on something that was a little more not necessarily positive, but forward thinking. And I, and I think for me, that was also a reminder to myself that in my job, things can get very tumultuous and I can get bogged down with everybody that I have to help. But to be able to just stop a minute and say, I'm providing housing for a child. And isn't that wonderful? And to just let that be my sort of my moment of solidness and not let my mind spin so much. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.